If you would, please turn your copy of God's Word to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Reminder, if you don't have a Bible with you, the sermon text is on the inside cover of your bulletin there. John 1, 1 through 18, we're taking a break from Isaiah to look at six Christmas cards or portraits from four different artists, evangelists. Each of the four was enabled by the Holy Spirit to use their unique personality to paint a unique portrait of Jesus. And John might be the most unique portrait of all. With that, let's look at John chapter 1, 1 through 18. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the fullness of it. We thank you for grace upon grace. Now, would you give us ears to hear, minds to understand the fullness, the height, the breadth, the depth of the love of God for sinners such as us. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Even if this is all Greek to you, you still need the logos, the word. Even if you have a PhD in Greek philosophy or New Testament studies, you still need the logos. You need the word. You need it just as much as me, just as much as John's original audience did. You need light and truth to break through the darkness. You need grace upon grace to cover over your sin. You need his blessings to flow far as the curse is found. If Mark skips the nativity scene altogether, as we saw two weeks ago, then you might say that John paints the nativity scene as an impressionist painter, as a philosopher. The truths of the incarnation are all here, some implied, some spelled out, some in different words than the other gospels. But again, no manger, no wise men, 
no shepherds. But you can't say that John skips the beginning of the story. Because John actually goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, even before the beginning. And John is also asking, begging, some big, ultimate questions. Why am I here? Who am I? What is my purpose? Lord willing, we'll answer those three questions by exploring these three concepts. Creation, illumination, and glorification. With that, let's dive in learning about the logos, the word, the ultimate questions of life. The first thing we see here this morning is creation through the word. Creation through the word in verses 1 through 5. Let's look at the first three together. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning, same three words that opened the Bible, that opened the book of Genesis, and intentionally so. In the beginning, it says, was the word, word or logos, a common Greek word, but it had some Greek philosophical baggage in the first century. The logos was the order and structure that created and governed the universe, but the logos, according to Greek philosophy, was an impersonal force. It sounds a little bit like Star Wars, the force. There might be something to that. But John is using this word, common word in his day, very intentionally, but he's trying to use it slightly differently. He's trying to explain, you were almost right. There is a unifying, organizing principle for all of reality, but it's not impersonal. There is a logos, but he's a little bit different than what you've thought. The logos or the word, he was in the beginning, in fact, he was with God, and he was God, still is, always was, didn't become God. So the word is God, and he is also in relationship with God. They're distinct, but not separate. I don't know what hand motion works to illustrate that. Illustrations of the Trinity usually fall short as a side note. But John is doing that. He is laying out for us the basics of the Trinity, a deep concept. Some of the simplest words possible. In the word, he was in the beginning with God. Always existed, contrary to what several heresies teach. In the word, it says he is the agent of creation. Verse 3. Of all of creation. The word was not created, but he did the creating. And as one commentator says, John is introducing us now to the main character of the story. The Christmas story. The story of the whole world. Before the story even begins. See, we might want to jump ahead to angels, songs, wise men, gifts, all of that. But John takes us back to the beginning. Matthew tells us the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. It's true. It's memorable. It's poetic. But John wants you to know why there's darkness in the first place. God in his word, he's saying in a manner of speaking, have already shown into the darkness once. When they created the whole world and everything in it. And of course, that happy story did not stay happy. Man rebelled, plunging himself into sin, into misery, into darkness. And of course, God promised immediately in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, he promised a redeemer, the seed or descendant of the woman who would come and crush the head of the devilish serpent. 
And the world, in a sense, has been waiting for that Savior ever since. And in another sense, that Savior has always been there. The Word. He is the life and light that men need, even though they don't comprehend it, even though they would largely reject him when he came. Because as John says later, men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. They would rather hide in the darkness. Now keep in mind this morning, evil, rebellion, can look different ways. To the Greeks, it looked like a meaning for life that didn't include God. They saw the wonders of his creation and they said, ah, this was an impersonal force named the Lagos who's responsible for all this. That force created all these orderly things that we have here. Whereas today, men and women are more likely to dismiss the idea of order in the universe altogether. To dismiss the idea of God as well. This is all just chaos. There's no meaning here. If there's any order, it's an accident. If there's any meaning, I have to find it for myself. Actually, I have to create meaning for myself. I have to express myself, create meaning. It, but because I have no objective standard to measure that meaning, I need constant validation of those around me. Which is, by the way, why Instagram and TikTok and a thousand other kinds of social media are not going away anytime soon. Some think there is order but no God. Some think there is disorder that we have to order ourselves. Many believe variations on all those basic themes, whether they would say them out loud or merely accept them unthinkingly. And all of them, whether they realize it or not, are answering an ultimate question. Why am I here? John's answer is very simple. Because God created you. The God who had everything he needed before creation, who had eternal fellowship within himself, within the triune God, he created you in love. He created you to enter into his joy, his paradise. And even when mankind forfeited their place in paradise, this creator kept pursuing you, kept shining into the darkness so that the darkness could not overcome the light. Again, deep concepts, simple words, simple enough that they could be, for example, summed up in the children's catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you in all things for his own glory? How can we glorify God by loving him and doing what he commands? Why should you glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. You are here because a loving creator and a holy God made you. All things were made through him, it says. Creation through the Word, the pre-existent Son of God. That is the first thing John shows us about Christmas. And next we see this, secondly, illumination by the Word. Illumination by the Word in verses 4 through 13. Verses 4 and 5 are transitional in a way. Let's look at those. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. Classic themes, light and dark, good and evil. The famous commentator F.F. F. Bruce, who, yes, has a very cool name, said that light here represents, quote, spiritual illumination that dispels the darkness of sin and unbelief. 
Why do we look for explanations that edit out God? It's because of sin and unbelief. Sin corrupts even our minds. This concept has been discussed since at least the Middle Ages. Theologians called it the noetic effect of sin. Why noetic? Because nous is the Latin word. That was the language of the day, the Latin word for mind or intellect. If what they're saying is true, and it is, then of course we need life and light from an outside source to save us. We need the logos, the true logos. We need what he can offer. But we resist, don't we? We resist, and so God sends messengers or prophets. But before the events of John chapter 1, there had been a shortage of prophets, a famine of God's word for 400 years. Malachi that we read when we lit the candles, that was the last prophetic word for 400 years until, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not John the author, by the way. John the author refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved, which, by the way, said more about Jesus than it did about John. No, we're talking about John the Baptist. But John, the apostle, evangelist, author, he just calls him John. Jesus' cousin, the one who needs no introduction. Verses 7 and 8, it says, John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Every preacher, every Christian needs to meditate upon this. He was not the light. He will later say, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. We need to remind ourselves of that frequently. We are not the Savior. Our job is to witness, to testify about what we've seen and heard, to testify about what Jesus has done in and around us. What makes a good testimony? Is it the stuff that you'll find in an R-rated movie? Or is it a story about what Jesus has done in your life? Whether your life is a train wreck, or whether it's full of what Jerry Bridges teasingly called respectable sins, the important part of your testimony is the Jesus part. The part where you tell about how Jesus has saved you from sin and misery, be it past sin and misery or potential sin and misery that God graciously allowed you to avoid, calling you to himself. It's about Jesus, a good testimony is. Now, John hasn't mentioned Jesus' name yet, but can't you just see him bursting through the scenes of this story? Speaking of which, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He's coming, it says. But how? He hasn't revealed that yet. Stay tuned. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It's a bit of a summary of Jesus' ministry. Lots of rejection. The next verses are even more specific. <clears throat> Starting in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. F.F. F. Bruce suggested that John chapters 1 through 12 could be summarized as he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Whereas John 13 and following to the end of the book could be summarized as to all who did receive him. Jesus was the light, but that doesn't mean he was always welcomed. 
You know, how many times do you read the following in the Gospels? Oh, Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for shining your light on my hypocrisy in pride in sin. Oh, the light and the truth are great until they reveal the hard truths about me and my heart. J.C. Ryle said, if the light had to come, then we must have been really dark. If the Son of God, who was of infinite worth, had to be the sacrifice for our sin, then our sin must have been huge. Cosmic treason against the creator of all the universe. And this gets at another ultimate question. Who am I? Who am I? We might play games and convince ourselves that we're a blank slate. We're whatever we want to be. But it's simply not so. And it's definitely not helpful. PCA campus minister recently recommended a book to me, You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. The title comes from 1 Corinthians 6, as well as the first answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. But in this book, which I've only skimmed briefly, Noble argues that postmodern, post-truth views of humanity, the things we've been talking about, about how we are the one who creates our own identity and meaning. He says those views are essentially inhumane. They make us less than human. They promise freedom and so much more, but all they deliver is new bondage, chaos, and meaninglessness. What's the alternative? What's John telling us? <clears throat> He's saying that you were created by a God who loves you. Created good, but you've fallen. But despite your rebellion, you're running from God. God still loves you. God is coming into the world. God is bringing light into your darkness. He not only created you, he will follow you down into the darkness to give you light where there was none. He will tell you the truth about yourself, the hard, ugly truth, and he will still love you just as you are. But he loves you too much to let you stay that way, bruised and broken by the fall. He wants to restore you to re-illuminate you, to reshape you into what you were always meant to be. He wants to illumine you by the word, the living word, the abiding word, the truthful word, who can find us in the cave of our own darkness and sin and then shine a light to illumine the way out. The one who worked creation is ready to illumine your hearts, to recreate you into what you were always meant to be. And he won't stop there. After illumination, we also see this, thirdly and finally. <clears throat> excuse me. We see glorification from the word. Glorification from the word. Verses 14 through 18. Uh, gracification might be more accurate, but I'm pretty sure I made that word up. But what you see is the process of God's grace bringing glory Glorification, of course, is a technical term, the state in which we will one day be in heaven, in God's presence, and have no sin. But grace is what gets us to that state of glory or glorification. Nonetheless, light in the darkness. Just talked about that, a blessed thing. But as John wraps up this prologue or introduction, he says God is going to do, keep doing more amazing things through the coming of the word, the true logos. After verse 13, where he promises light, life, adoption as God's sons, and new birth, he has more. John says this in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So much to unpack just in that verse. It says the word became flesh, this divine logos. He took on a human nature. He was born. He took on weakness and frailty. The infinite was veiled by the finite. And it also says he dwelt among us, dwelt. The Greek word is skenao from which we get Shekinah glory. You might be familiar with that term, the glory that dwelled in the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle, of course, was a big tent, a fancy one, where God's presence dwelled when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. And in the wilderness of this fallen world, God comes to camp out with us, to pitch his tent with us, to move in next door, to be God to us, to be with us is Emmanuel. And that's why John says, we have seen his glory. He came. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God's glory. F.F. Bruce says his glory is his goodness. You've seen his glory. If you've seen what he has done. And you've also seen that he is full of grace and truth. That phrase is probably alluding to Exodus 34, verse 6, where the Lord says to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In those themes, they keep coming up in these few short verses here, 14 to 18. Verse 15 follows. It's, a, it's in parenthesis. It's a little aside. We've got to talk about John once again. It mentions how John the Baptist, who is six months older than Jesus approximately, he said that Jesus was before me. Huh? Because John was speaking, possibly better than he knew, about the son's preexistence, which is mentioned again earlier in this passage. He was before me. He was before all of us. And then that leads to verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. He is full of grace and truth. And from that fullness, same word group, we've received grace upon grace. Multiple interpretations about grace upon grace. Give me one minute. I'll explain why. I think the simplest one is the best. But first we need to see verse 17 that says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why mention Moses? What's going on? Because there is something gracious about the Mosaic covenant, one of the foundational covenants of the Old Testament, and the law of God, which is revealed in the Ten Commandments, right? There's something gracious about that. It tells you about God's character. For example, why is lying a sin? Because God is pure truth. He never lies. And it's ungodly to lie. We could do that with each of the commandments. The law is also good. because It tells you not just about his character, but what his holy requirements are. It is a mirror to show ourselves, to, to show us ourselves in light of God's holy standard. And I hate to tell you, but you are not the fairest of them all. You have fallen short of God's glory. That's what the mirror tells you. That in and of itself is gracious, so showing us our, our sin, our need, and at least showing us that we have a problem. There is grace there. 
But Jesus Christ shows us so much more. He shows us grace in truth. Truth about our sin, but truth about our Savior. Truth about our gracious Savior who gives us, what was that phrase in verse 16? Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. What is that? F.F. Bruce explains. Just to prepare you, there's a big word or two in here, but stay with me. It's worth it. This plenitude of divine glory and goodness which resides in Christ. It is an ocean from which all his people may draw without ever diminishing its content. What the followers of Christ draw from this ocean of divine fullness is grace upon grace. One wave of grace being constantly replaced by a fresh one. There is no limit to the supply of grace which God has placed at his people's disposal in Christ. And he closes by quoting 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. David Strain said it this way, talking about another book of the Bible. There is more grace in Christ than there is need in you. And you will never exhaust the provision of God. Grace upon grace. The kind that comes when you more fully understand God when Christ makes him known. Verse 18 is alluding to Moses again, the one who wanted to see God. Show me your glory. But he didn't, not quite. He saw the afterglow of the divine glory. He saw what was there after God passed by. Moses didn't see God, not in his fullness. No one has ever seen God in the fullness of his glory. But Christ has made him known. He has exegeted and explained the Father by, among other things, showing us grace upon grace, by glorifying himself, showing us the fullness of his holiness, the fullness of his grace and mercy in the person of Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And all of that, it's both extremely countercultural and clarifying. It's countercultural. There is wave upon wave of grace and forgiveness in Christ. But our world is not a forgiving world. Maybe you've noticed. None of us are as tolerant as we think we are. Not if you threaten what really matters to me. We live in a very unforgiving world. If you make one mistake, you're canceled. Never to be forgiven. And that's not exclusive to just one group. You may say, well, I mean, there's this one. They're just horrible people. I would simply ask you. Not argue with you. I'd simply ask you, don't you want something better? And aren't you glad that Christ offers something better, something more gracious, something more forgiving, that he offers grace upon grace for the rebellious who want nothing to do with him until his grace pursues them and finds them for the respectable, so respectable at times that we forget our need of God's grace until his grace also pursues us and finds us. Grace is not the way of the world, but it's the way of Christ. And by the way, this also clarifies our purpose. Again, why are we here? Because he created us in love. Who are we? We're sons of the king, fallen yet reilluminated and reinvigorated in Christ by his grace. And what is our purpose? It's to bring glory to the king, the light, the giver of glory and grace. We're on a catechism kick this morning. Not that that's a bad thing, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way. 
our chief end or purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John said it this way. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Paul, we said this one earlier. He said it this way. Jesus Christ came to me to display his perfect patience. He gave me his perfect patience so that in me, as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Your purpose is to bring glory to the one who deserves all glory, the one who created you, the one who gave you light in the darkness, the one who overwhelmed you with grace upon grace, more grace than Moses, more grace than the law which condemns, more grace than you can imagine, more grace than you can exhaust. That's what you find in the word, the true logos. We don't need freedom from the world's expectations. We don't need to find our own way. We need to find grace. And you can find it in the word. You can find it in a manger in Bethlehem. You can find it in a cross on Calvary. And you can find it right now. Grace upon grace. One wave after another. Far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have something more gracious, something more accepting, something more blessed and glorious in Christ our Savior. Oh, Father, would you help us in every twinkle of Christmas lights that we see, in every little reminder, would you help us to see the grace upon grace that is there in Christ our Savior. Be with us, we pray in his great name. Amen.